My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning. This is Lane Jones, pastor of Calkins Baptist Church, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. As we've been progressing through the book of Romans, we've been considering some of the major doctrines of the Christian faith and answering some of the obvious questions that often spring from our hearts when we consider these truths. In fact, the doctrinal section of the book of Romans has five major subjects, and as we go through each section, there is a major question to answer for each of those sections. So here's what we've covered so far. First one is the question of why do Bible-believing Christians say that mankind is sinful and rightly under the eternal punishment of God? And so we're answering that question under the section of the sinfulness of man. Now we saw that if you're a lost sinner who's rejecting Christ as your Savior, God is rightfully angry with you even if you make no claim to be a follower of the God of the Bible. And you say, well, why would he be angry with me? I don't even claim to be a follower of, of God. Well, because you're suppressing his truth that he has put within you and all around you, and you are showing great ingratitude because you know he's there and you're not willing to give him the time of day to run your life. And so God is angry with the person who doesn't even claim to be his follower. But he's also angry with people who claim to be his followers, but in fact are not. We commonly call them hypocrites. And why would he be angry with them? Well, because obviously of their pride and hypocrisy in committing the same sins for which they condemn non-religious people and wanting God to judge others while not expecting God to judge themselves, assuming that they know the truth, and that's basically... The same thing as practicing the truth, which we all know when we think about it, isn't so. And because they're trusting religion many times to save them from their sin and not the sacrifice of God's Son and the tremendous sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. So both groups are repeatedly and habitually sinning against the Lord and those he created. Then we asked a second question, and that is, why do Bible-believing Christians say that salvation from God's wrath only comes by faith in Christ? I mean, why can't you come a different direction? So we dealt with the doctrine of the justification of man. What we saw was salvation cannot come through keeping God's law. So, of course, we can think of the Ten Commandments or other laws that were given, but the purpose of the law has never been to save us. It's always been to reveal right and wrong, and thus ultimately to show us our sin. And we also saw that salvation by God's grace through faith is not something new to the, to the New Testament. It's something taught throughout the Bible, that Abraham was saved by faith. We saw that in Genesis 15 and verse 6. The King David wrote of God giving him righteousness he did not earn and not holding sins against him. That was Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. We also saw that salvation by faith in Christ's sacrifice is deeply humbling. Because when I realize I have to put my faith in Christ and no religion, no other person, not myself, then it boils down to God gets all the glory because Jesus rescued me. It takes away our opportunity for pride. Then we also saw that salvation by grace through faith then can be offered to the entire world. You don't have to be a certain race. You don't have to hold a certain place in society at all. And so things like circumcision, baptism, ordination, whatever else you want to name, they're not going to get you into heaven. And law keeping, obviously, as Paul's already mentioned, doesn't get you into heaven. And that's good because none of us keep God's law perfectly, which is God's standard. So we saw that salvation by grace through faith can be offered then to the entire world. And only Christ's sacrifice then can give us peace with God. 
Then we came to a section that answers this question. Why do Bible-believing Christians say it is possible to live a new life of obedience to God? Why do we say that you really can be a different person? And here's what we saw. We saw this under the doctrine of the sanctification of man, which we were studying for the last four previous weeks. We saw that God's grace is meant to free you from sin, but not to free you to sin. And so those Christians who try to make the case that you're kind of free to do whatever you want, you don't have to ever confess sin again, that's craziness. It's not what the scriptures teach at all. God does free us from sin, and we're going to be eternally free from sin when we know Christ as Savior. He doesn't free us so that we can just go out and live any old way we please. We also saw that the Christian life is built on a living relationship with God and not law-keeping. And so it's not me following a list that will make me spiritual. It's really walking humbly with the Lord each day. It's a relationship walk. It really is. We also saw that the Holy Spirit now indwells you to give you victory over sin, which is why people really can change and can change forever. And we also saw that salvation, when that takes place, you are forgiven from being God's enemy. You're actually adopted as his child. And so it's a brand new relationship with brand new opportunities to serve the Lord and to do what's right. Now today we start our fourth doctrinal section in the book of Romans, and we're trying to answer this question. Why do many Bible-believing Christians say, and I notice I'm using the word many, because even some of you who are listening may not fall in this category, but why do many Bible-believing Christians say that those who are truly saved are headed to heaven and will not be lost? So why do some of us say that? Now, other Christians think that you could lose your salvation. And so I know this is a subject that doesn't have complete uniformity throughout genuine Bible-believing Christianity. But I would say that I'd like you to listen to this section dealing with the glorification of man and see what you think when we go through Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 18. We're going to end at verse 30, Lord willing, today. So before we get started, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to study your word and to be able to proclaim it freely in our country. We've been blessed, Lord. We are grateful for the freedoms that you've given us. We inherited and and much sacrifice has gone into the freedoms that we enjoy. We want to thank you for those who have secured our freedom. We think of those in the military and those who have been faithfully walking with you and had an impact on our society. Lord, we also would pray your blessings upon those who are listening, that you might use your word to speak to all of our hearts, and not just to understand more information, but to know how to apply it, that we might take your word and live it out for your glory and your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. So we can say that the truly saved Christian, and let me just define that quickly, you who are trusting Christ, not your church, not your prayers, not your church attendance, not your giving, not any other replacement for Christ. You who are trusting Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary in your place for your sins, you who are trusting in Christ can rest in your salvation. Why? Well, first of all, because God's plan for humanity revolves around blessing you who are his children. You truly will embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And so we see this in uh, starting at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. That's where I'm going to read. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits 
for the revealing of the sons of God. That's verse 18 and 19. Let me just stop there for a second and talk about what we've already read. First of all, your current sufferings, he's saying, cannot compare with your future glory in heaven. That's verse 18. Now, this means several things. First of all, that the sufferings for Christ's followers in this life are real. We go through the same things that other people go through. So if you see these people who get on television or radio and give the indication that if you're really walking with God, you should have all kinds of wealth and your health should be good and wonderful things should be happening to you. I don't see how you arrive at that if you just simply read the New Testament. If you look at Jesus, his life ends with his crucifixion, a horrific event. You look at the disciples, and many of them died a martyr's death from what we understand with history. We know that several of them were actually killed before the New Testament was even finished. So how do we arrive at this idea that you're just supposed to have all the the health and the wealth that you want? It really is not biblical at all. Sufferings for Christ's followers in this life are real. And they can come from several different sources. Some suffering is due to the curse of sin upon humanity. An example of that would be just disease or aging or the loss of loved ones. It doesn't mean that you've done anything necessarily wrong because you've got a disease or because you're aging. Certainly, we all age. Now, could we look back and say, well, it's because of the curse of sin on this planet? Yeah, definitely we could say that. But it doesn't mean that you've done anything specifically that has caused certain suffering to come into your life. Now, some suffering is due to your own sinful choices. If you want to break the law and you end up in jail, well, that was your choice. If you lose your temper and you lose friends over it, well, that was a bad decision, wasn't it? If you commit adultery on your spouse, well, you can expect that your marriage is going to be affected. If you get into drugs or alcohol and you begin to abuse those things, well, you lose your job or you lose your health, you really can't blame someone else. You've made those choices. Now, so some suffering is due just to the curse of sin upon humanity. Some suffering is due to your own sinful choices, and yet some suffering is due to the sinful choices of others. And this is the hardest, I think, to bear. When you're the innocent one that's been loyal to your spouse and your spouse commits adultery on you, cheats on you, or when violence is done to you, or we think about these terrorist attacks that have just been going on in Israel, and how many of us have looked at that in just horror, at what was done to these people. We can also consider the issue of persecution. I think about a, a young woman over in, I believe it was India, attractive young lady. Someone came into her office. She was working, just confirmed that she would admit to being a Christian and threw acid in her face, scarring her face for the rest of her life. I don't think they can fix the damage that was done. Suffering for Christ followers in this life is a real thing. But we also see from verse 18 that the future glories in heaven for Christ's followers are also real. So he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we have no idea how wonderful heaven is. And I I think it's a good thing we, we don't know how wonderful heaven is or we'd all want to just die and get there. But think how beautiful this world is despite the curse of sin on it. I mean, many of us have had the chance to travel to different places, whether it be Niagara Falls, or you've gone out to the shore and looked at the ocean, or maybe some of you have been to the Grand Canyon, or you've been to other beautiful places across the planet. Honestly, 
even this time of year, I often can come up just over a knoll near my house and look out and just see beauty all around me. And I often, I was thinking about this just the other day, I was talking to the Lord and I was just saying, you know, if I could paint or someone could just simply paint what I'm looking at right now, it would be such a beautiful thing. And yet this is real. This is not just somebody with with a brush and some paint that is trying to create the image of what we can see each day, uh, those of us who have good eyes. What a blessing it is. But sufferings for Christ followers are real in this life, but the future glories in heaven for Christ followers are also real, and there's just no comparison. How much more wonderful it'll be when we are in the Lord's presence. We see a third thing that comes out of this passage, that is Christ followers' future glories far surpass their present sufferings. And so I think it'd be good if we say, well, how, how is that so? Well, I want you to compare a little bit. First of all, the length of your suffering on this earth compared to the length of your glory in heaven. So all suffering for the follower of Christ on this planet is temporary. And yet all the glories for the follower of Christ are eternal. Think also of the source of your suffering on this earth compared to the source of your glory in heaven. Well, as I said before, the source of your suffering ultimately traces back to sin. And sin is powerful. It really is. It corrupted Satan. It corrupted other angels that followed Satan. We call them demons today. And it corrupted all of us who are on this planet. And yet, sin's power over Christ's followers itself is only temporary. I'm going to read you a little section out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, And it's verse 55 to 57. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or that's the realm of the dead, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So sin's power over Christ's followers is only temporary, and sin's power over Christ's followers has been broken. Back in chapter 6 of Romans, we covered this a few weeks back, he said this, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What a blessing that is. So I want you to think that the source of your suffering ultimately traces back to sin. Living on a sin-cursed planet is one of the major things and, of course, choices that we make. We also see that the source of your glory traces back to God. So think what God is like. Well, he's creative. I mean, just look at his creation. Go to a zoo, go to an aquarium, and look at the different variety of animals that God has created, let alone plants. You want to go to a beautiful garden like Longwood Gardens. My wife and I have been there. She loves flowers and plants. And and just going to these places, honestly, it's a joy to see the creative handiwork of God. He's also holy. God doesn't mingle good with evil. He is always doing what is right and holy and just. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, holy in all his works. God is holy. He's all-powerful. He's not limited in his ability to bless us. You'll also notice he's loyal. And we'll see this when we get into this passage deeper. Maybe you've heard some people talk about the what they think is a different God in the Old Testament compared to the God of the New Testament. A lot of times they say, well, the God of the Old Testament is mean and harsh and etc. The God of the New Testament is much more loving and kind. Let me just say this. It's the same God. One of the things that really encouraged me about that 
is a word that often in our English translations shows up as mercy or kindness or loving kindness. It's the word chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D is how you often find it. And 241 times it's used in the Old Testament. And when scholars have really begun to develop an understanding of this word, it seems that it really carries the idea of God both being loving and kind and loyal to his children. So I often will use it in this way, God's loyal love. Others will use it as his steadfast love. And that you find coming out of this passage, though the term is not used here, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. So he's creative, he's holy, he's all-powerful, he's loyal. You'll also notice that he's eternal. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, it's really encouraging what he says here. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with God, Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that's a place that Paul is describing a victory. It's why we as Christians really should be living victorious lives if we're walking with our God. Now, verse 7 says this, though, that in the ages to come, and literally you could translate that, that in the eons to come, okay? So just think of eternity he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. God is going to pour out his love and kindness on his children for all eternity. That's why as Christians, we really don't have to fear death. When we know that Christ is our Savior and we know that he is keeping us saved, then we can look forward to eternity with great joy. Not that we don't live for God in this life and don't have many blessings and, and, and overcome sorrows in this life as Christians, but the reality is we have that settled confidence of being with God forever in heaven and just letting him figure out all the different ways in which he wants to bless his children when we get there. Now, we also see not only that your current sufferings cannot compare with your future glory in heaven, but God's entire creation eagerly awaits your glorification as a child of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to back up to verse 19, which I read a few minutes ago, but read it again and keep going. It says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So why is the whole creation eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. That would be true believers. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so what's he talking about? Well, all of God's creation eagerly awaits the revelation of God's children. So when will God's children be revealed? Well, currently there are many people who claim to be followers of Christ who are fakes. I think we all know that. So when will Christ's true, true followers be revealed? You might think that God's true children will be revealed at Christ's coming in the rapture. Certainly those who believe in Christ, if we've got that correct, and I think we do, that they will 
be taken out. But there will be people that will come to Christ after that from all over the world. And there will be people who will be fakes during that period as well. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 10 tells us that there'll be a lot of betrayal going on during the period that we commonly call the tribulation period. So Christ is saying that his followers will be betrayed in what appears to be a description of life on earth after his coming for his church at the rapture. Also, it seems that when the sons of God, who are the true followers of Christ, are revealed, the curse of sin upon creation seems to be lifted. Now, that takes us then, because that's why the whole creation's groaning. Think about it. God didn't create when he created Adam and Eve. He didn't create the animal world to be the vicious thing that it is now. He really didn't. With all the animals you know, killing each other and, and the cruelties that are done in the, in the world in which we live. Now listen to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 65 of his book, verses 24 and 25, where he describes a future day in which the curse of death and sin has been lifted from creation. He writes this, It shall come to pass that before they call I will answer, and while they are still speaking I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Now there's, the wolf typically is going to eat the lamb. They're going to, they're going to feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So this curse upon creation will either be lifted when Christ's kingdom is established on earth, and that's a possibility, or in the eternal state in heaven. But the curse is going to be lifted, and how Paul is describing it here, the whole creation is groaning and like travailing in pain under the curse of sin that's been placed upon mankind. Now you say, well, what significance does that have to us? It shows us how much God values us as humans. We were the governors of this planet, and we messed things up, but God is revolving all of literally this world around his desire to save people. Now you say, so if that's true, then I want you to think about something else. Sin's curse upon man radically affected this world, the environment in which we live. And so we saw that in verses 19 to 22. The curse upon creation due to man's sin was also mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17 to 19. And I don't know if you remember when it's right before Adam and Eve are going to be dismissed from the Garden of Eden. They've sinned against God. And the Lord says this to Adam specifically. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Isn't that interesting? In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. For both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. By the way, God also said that he created the animals out of the ground. And of course, we also know that they decay in the same way. So Paul is describing then this curse upon our whole environment. And here's how he describes it in verse 20 again. For the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So he calls what the creation uh, around, the, around us is going through, he calls it futility. I think that's an interesting word. It reminds me of something that Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And in many ways, he's observing the cycles, like water cycle, you'll, you'll hear him talk about. You'll also hear him talking about um, uh, other cycles, wind cycles. But basically what he's pointing out is the futility of this. He says, starting with verse 4 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he says, One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. So there's a futility even in the passing of generations. He says the sun also rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to its place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south, turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually, comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. There's the water cycle. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And think about this. This is so true. If you went and heard a beautiful concert, you came away and you said, that was the most beautiful concert I've ever heard. Does that mean that you're completely satisfied? You say, I'm never going to want to go back to a concert again. No, in all likelihood, it just makes you want more. More of that beautiful music. Or if, if you go and watch a, a, a football game or a basketball game and it was very exciting, does that mean you never want to see another game again? Oh, no, it fuels your desire. He says our eyes aren't satisfied with seeing, our ears aren't filled with hearing. Verse 9, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. The preacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the heaven, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. When he says vanity, it's the idea of wanting something and thinking something's going to be good and exciting, something you really want, and then being disappointed when it turns out to be basically nothing. I think a great example of that, those of you that have had those little bubble things where as a kid, you know, you get the, the bottle with the basically water and a little bit of dish soap in it, I think. And then you got that little dipper thing and you dip it in there and, and it's got a little circle on it and then you blow out the bubble. And so maybe you've done this, you've blown out a bubble and you got a little child and they're so excited about seeing that bubble and they run after it and just when they get to it and they grab it wanting to play with it, of course, what does it do? It breaks. Now they had great expectation of having fun with that bubble and reality it turned out to be something very flimsy and temporary and something that they really couldn't use. And it was dis actually disappointing to them. Sometimes they'll even cry. That's what futility is like. That's the idea of vanity. And so Paul is saying the whole creation is in that. Many of you are animal lovers as I am, and you may have different puppies that you've raised to adulthood, and they became good friends of yours, and you loved that dog or loved that cat. But what happens? Eventually, the stage of puppyhood is gone, and they're now a, a young dog, and you enjoy them, and you're playing with them, but you keep them healthy. Time goes by, they become an older dog. And time eventually comes when, unfortunately, they die. And so we see these cycles, one generation passing, another generation coming. 
And yet there is hope. He said at the end of verse 20, again in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, and the him there is God, because of God who subjected it in hope. Now you say, what is the hope in physical death? It's a horrible thing. I mean, those of us who have lost loved ones, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's not something you think, well, that's a wonderful thing. So-and-so died. Why, why would God say that actually the curse of death upon humanity was a curse of hope? Well, let me take you back to something in Genesis chapter 3, where it says this from verse 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. This is right after he sinned in the Garden of Eden. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which he turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. God, in his mercy it's telling us, sends man away from the Garden of Eden primarily to keep him away from the tree of life lest he should live forever. You say, well, why would that emphasis be made there that God is not allowing us to live forever because the curse of sin is upon us? And when we can die and be resurrected with a glorified body, and free from the sin nature that is so afflicting us, death actually is our escape hatch from the sin-cursed bodies and the sin-cursed nature that we have and that we're born with. And so death actually is a death of hope. It is something where you can escape from the horrors of living under the bondage of sin. And I'll just point out one other passage on this subject, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. And the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption, which means there has to be a resurrection. We can't inherit heaven in our natural bodies. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And that's when he says, O death, where is your sting? So what we're learning is that physical death is actually something that gives us hope of being able to escape our sin-cursed nature. But what does that mean? That means that the curse of death and sin is upon not only ourselves as human beings, but on all of God's creation. That's how important we are. And so that's why he said the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. We all want out from under it. And so what comes next is more information about how we're going to escape that reality. So now we come to Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25. It says, Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. 
For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So what we see is we're eagerly awaiting our own glorification when we know Christ is Savior. And Paul is certainly talking to born-again Christians. This is who he's talking to. So if you don't know Christ as Savior yet or you're not really sure about this, then it really doesn't apply to you yet until you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But when you do, what you learn is that we walk through this world of pain with confident expectation of our eternal future. That word hope, I've mentioned this before, the word hope there in the Bible term does not mean like a flip of the coin. You know, I hope it's heads. It means a confident expectation. That's what that word means. And so you could literally say it like this. We're saved in this confident expectation, but that confident expectation that is seen is not hope. So the idea is that we walk through this world of pain, but we have a confident expectation that we have an eternal future in heaven. So listen to what God says is coming for you who know Christ as your Savior. I'm going to read out of Revelation chapter 21 and the first five verses. This is what's called the eternal state. It's where believers are in Christ are going to be forever. John writes, he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the best way John could describe this beautiful city he sees coming down, which is heaven, he says the best way you could describe it is it's like a bride all dressed up for her husband on her wedding day. He said, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now let me tell you, that is the greatest thing about heaven right there. And that is that we will dwell with God and God will live with us. It's hard to even imagine or fathom what that'll be like. But then he goes on, he says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, what is this all about? This is an indication, and we're going to see the specifics of it in just a moment, that God is going to once and for all wipe away the curse of sin on our lives, on our souls. When it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there shall be no more death. Now, there's part of the curse of sin. Nor sorrow. There's another part of it. Nor crying. There's another part of it. There shall be no more pain. There's another part of the curse of sin. For the former things have passed away. So all of these are are connected with the curse of sin. So God is, is saying that curse is, is done away with. And verse 5 tells us this, Then he who sat on the throne, that would be God himself, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is really going to happen. The curse of sin is going to be wiped away. Now, I remember, and it will be actually tomorrow as I'm taping this, it'll be one year since my dad went home to be with the Lord. And if you said to me, Pastor Lane, why did your father die at 85 years old? And I would have to reply that he was a godly and he was a saved man. He was a man who preached the gospel for about 65 years of his life. But the fact that he was born in sin 
and obviously had sinned against God multiple times meant that he, just like you and I, was under the curse of sin. Now, he was in good health uh, for much of those 85 years, but over time, the aging process took away his youthful good looks. They faded away. His, his uh, body that was strong became unable to fight off the effects of aging. And when I said my final goodbyes to my dad on earth, it was sorrowful, absolutely. But it was with the confident expectation I was going to see him again, this time with a new body, this time in perfection. And I look forward to that, confidently expecting I'm going to see my dad again because he knew Christ as Savior, and I know him too. So what we've seen so far as to why we as Christians can be settled in our eternal life with God in heaven is, first of all, God's plan for humanity revolves around us. It's a wonderful thing that he really cares that much about his children who have accepted Christ on earth. And so we see that our current sufferings, as we talked about, cannot compare with the future glory in heaven, that God's entire creation is, wait, is awaiting our glorification in heaven, and that you yourself, if you know Christ as your Savior, can eagerly then await your own glorification. But we have another reason why we can be excited about our salvation and not worried if we're going to be accepted by the Lord or not when we when we die. And that is we have the Holy Spirit and God the Father to help us once we accept Christ. So here's what Paul says. Now, again, remember, he's writing to believers, people who have accepted Jesus. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Now, the Spirit there is the Holy Spirit. And he says he helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who knows the mind excuse me, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, the person who searches the minds and, uh, and hearts, that's God. And so we're looking at God the Father in verse 27. We're looking at God the Holy Spirit in verse 26. And what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit helps you in your weaknesses, now, in this verse, God gives a great example of the Holy Spirit helping in our weaknesses, and that is one weakness we often have is, is prayer. It's like you're coming up against a situation, and how do you sometimes even know how to pray? So sometimes you can be maybe so sick that you're struggling with even knowing how to pray, or maybe so discouraged. Maybe there's a situation that's just causing you a great amount of pain, and so you don't know how to pray. And what we're told here is even in times of weakness like that, the Holy Spirit is there, and he's even there to intercede on our behalf before God the Father and tell us maybe what we can't even come up with the words. And I, I've been there. I, I don't know if maybe you've been there too where you wanted to pray about something and you didn't even know how to express it. And sometimes I've just said, Lord, you know, Holy Spirit, just express it to the Father for me because I don't even know how to say what I want here. And we also are told then in verse 27 that God the Father responds to the Holy Spirit's intercession. And not only that, but he who searches our hearts, he knows us inside and out. And so knows not only what we are truly wanting, maybe it's right or maybe it's not, 
but he knows also what the Holy Spirit is asking the Lord to do as well. And so we can rest again in our salvation because we have the Holy Spirit and God the Father helping us. Let me give you a third blessing that we can hang on to when we know Christ as Savior, and that is you have God's loyal love working constantly in your life. And so we come now to probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I know there's a bunch of people today who may not even know the Bible, may not know Romans 8, 28 per se, but you'll hear them say something like this. Well, everything happens for a purpose. And that's true to an extent. It definitely God is ahead of everything. It's not that God is doing everything by any stretch. Again, we're looking at some horrific acts of, of wicked and evil people that happened in Israel a little, little less than a week ago as I'm taping this. And God's not doing that. Now, can God turn even such vile acts into something that will eventually turn out good? And the answer is yes. I mean, you look at the cross where we tortured to death as human beings, the only one who'd ever lived a sinless life among us, and yet God turned that into the ultimate good as Jesus dies for our sins and, and provides salvation for us. So if God can make good out of the greatest injustice ever done, God can still work good out of very difficult circumstances today. But that promise is not for everyone. Let me read it to you again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So what we have to start with when we think about God's loyal love working in the heart of his children and in the lives of his children, you have to understand that he's working all of your life circumstances for good if you know Christ as Savior. And so this promise is only true for saved Christians. It's not true for everyone. And not all those who claim to be saved then um, uh, are, are genuinely converted. So this promise is given to those who love God and who are called by God to salvation. And by the way, that's the same person. It's not that you can be called to God for salvation and not love the Lord. Now, I know we don't love him like we ought, but that's just a twofold definition of the person we're talking about. So the genuinely saved person... He loves God, and he and, and may not love him perfectly by any stretch, but he does love the Lord, and he is called to salvation. And still, many people have faced horrific, painful circumstances for which they can see no good purpose. So what is the good that God says he is constantly produce, producing in the lives of each of his truly saved uh, uh, children? So let me read 28 again one more time, and then I'm going to go on to the next statement. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what we see is the good that's happening here involves making you and I who are God's children more like Jesus. It's making us more like the Savior. Now, did Jesus face cruelty and evil that injured him and actually took his life? And of course, the answer is obviously yes. Now, did Jesus' suffering 
have a purpose? And of course, the answer again is yes. Now, you don't need to understand it. Don't worry if you say, and many believers have down through the centuries, I don't see how God can work anything good out of this. But it's not that we have to be able to see it. We just have to trust God that he's able to do it and that he will. There's a lot of things when you think about it that you may not understand but are, in fact, true. One of them, I'll just give you a few of them. Nate, dark matter, what is that? And uh, just reading, uh, let's see, this afternoon, something about dark matter that they still don't really know what it is. They they believe it's out there, that it's actually causing effects that they're not able to understand without that concept, but they really don't know what it is. Here's another one, and this is even an older question, the nature of light. Is light a wave, or is it a particle, or is it both? And quite frankly, I don't think they've got a really solid definition for what light is, even to this day. Or how about this one, those of you that are even more up on the the modern uh, scientific questions, and how about what is quantum entanglement? And it's kind of interesting for me to hang around with some of the uh, intelligent young men in our church who have done a lot more reading on this subject than I have, and just to pick their brains a little bit on some of these issues. Do I understand everything? Be quite honest, I don't think there are any scientists that I know of that have all the answers on any one of these issues. But the reality is, just because we don't understand something doesn't make it untrue. And so it is when we can't see how God is going to work good out of a difficult situation in our lives, something that looks to us, like just pure evil, God still can, because that's how great he is. That Again, it's not for everybody, but for those who know Christ as Savior, to those who are the called, yeah, you can hang on to that. He's going to work good, and the ultimate good is to make you more like Jesus. And part of being like Jesus is being able to go through suffering and do it for the glory of God. Now, there's also what we see here, a guiding um, principle that'll uh, that'll take you to heaven. And this, what I'm talking about here, is how God's hand is on his children from before we were ever born. Now, let me read you verse 30. It says this, Moreover, whom he, whom, this is talking about God, predestined, these he also called. So we're seeing, first of all, is God is predestinating his children before we ever knew him. So all who get saved are actually seen by God and in some sense chosen by him before we were ever born. So it's kind of hard to imagine God dropping us if he chose me before I chose him. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16, he said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, now it doesn't mean that they didn't make any choices, but the primary choice actually was Christ choosing them. So the point is that God has already seen us, known that we're coming to him, chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's not going to drop us. Now he said this, let me read it again. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Which means not only did he predestine you to become his child if you're saved, but he called you to salvation. He was the, it was his idea. Now, the gospel message goes out to everybody. Everybody through creation can see there's a God. Everyone through our conscience knows we're sinners. But the reality is that when we get saved, we really do hear God's voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
And I'm not talking about an audible thing. If you've not been saved yet, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that you just know God's speaking to you. Could be through a message like I'm, I'm given right now. Could be by because you got reading the Word of God. But God has a way of calling out His children. So He said He the step first one is predestining you to be His child. The second one is calling you to salvation. I'll start the verse at the top again. Moreover, whom He predestined, he, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It means He made you a righteous person, so that all who get saved and are made righteous are declared righteous before God. They're the same ones that were predestined. They were the same ones who were called. So I'll read it again. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Which means every person who's predestined to be God's child will hear God's call for salvation, will respond will become then a righteous person and will one day be with God in heaven as his eternal child. So all who are declared righteous before God will be glorified in heaven. This means that you're not going to be dropped along the way. God saw you before you ever saw him. So notice that this is presented even, let me read that last one, whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's like calling it, as if it was in the past. It just shows you how certain it is that when you are truly saved, you're going to go to heaven. Now, what do we want to conclude then from this? First of all, we need to clearly define what salvation is. If you've been saved, you have come to believe and accept that you are a sinner before God, that you cannot save yourself by doing good deeds, that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came to this earth and died in your place for your sins, that Christ rose from the dead after his crucifixion, proving he's the Son of God, and then you simply have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ to save you. That's what being a born-again Christian is. You believe what God has said about himself. You believe what God has said about his Son. You believe what God has said about you. I need the Savior. I need his forgiveness that he purchased for me on the cross. I'm accepting him. And when you truly, from your heart of hearts, accept Christ as Savior, you are a different person. You become a child of God. You're not perfect, but you are different. You're a new creature in Christ. So we have to clearly define salvation. Secondly, we would conclude by saying, if you have become a follower of Christ, you can rest secure in your salvation. And why? Because, first of all, God's plan for humanity revolves around blessing you. It's incredible, but it's true. Number two, you have God the Holy Spirit, God the Father helping you. That was verse 26 and 27. Three, you have God's loyal love working constantly in your life to work all things out for the goal of making you more like Jesus. So you'd say, well, Pastor, if it really is that secure, if, if I really am going to heaven simply because I put my faith in Christ and, and accepted Christ as in, into my life as my Lord and Savior— if that's really true, why don't Christians just go out and live any way they want to? And I will just answer by saying this. The Christian life does not work without genuine conversion. <laughs> Unless you're truly saved, it doesn't work. But it does work when you are truly saved. God really does change people. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. So, a born-again Christian who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and assured by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God of the security of his eternal relationship with his Lord 
is a powerful witness to a needy world for the Lord. Why? Because you're the ultimate satisfied customer. You're the person that's like, I've been given so much by God. I was taken off the road to hell and eternal destruction. God has saved my soul. That's why, dear friend, if you have a, some born-again Christians who've been bugging you, that's why they're doing it, because they love you and they love God. And they want you to be with them in heaven. It's a great compliment if they're witnessing to you. So it just means that God has come into their life and has changed them, and they really want to serve him. So the main thought I'd leave you with is this. Your salvation is secure because God loyally loves his own. When I was a kid, I remember we were in a store somewhere and went into the bathroom with my father and I came out and I didn't see him. Now, he was in another stall, come to find out, but I thought maybe he had already left the bathroom. So again, I'm probably nine, ten years old, I'm guessing, so I go out of the bathroom, and I'm looking around outside the bathroom in the store a little bit, and then my dad comes out and finds me. I think it probably made him nervous even back then that, you know, what would ha what happened to my son. And so he was a little bit put out with me, and I said, well, Dad, I thought, I thought you left the bathroom. And here's what he said, I would never leave you. Don't you ever worry about that. I would not leave you behind. Now, my dad was only a human, but you know, God has said the same thing. I will never leave you or forsake you. What a wonderful blessing that is. Grab on to that if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and rest in the fact that Christ's salvation is an eternal salvation. It's not in and out, depending on how good your day goes. It's not. When God saves you, he already planned it before the beginning of the creation. And everyone that he predestined, he called. Everyone that he called, he justified. And everyone that he justified, he's going to glorify. Thank God. Lord bless you. Just before I let you go, I did want to mention that at the church, starting this coming Sunday night, which would be October the 15th, I'm going to be starting a series on an overview of the Bible. For those of you that may not be familiar with the Bible or just like kind of a refresher, I'm going to be going over some of the major themes of the Bible. It'll take me several weeks to do it. The study goes from 6 to 7 p.m. on Sunday evenings, and you're more than welcome to join us. It's 527 Calkins Road, Milanville, Pennsylvania, Calkins Baptist Church. Lord bless you. Hope you'll have a great rest of your day. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.